This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the 3D Pod. I'm Joris Peels. I'm here again today with Maxwell Vogue. Hey, everyone. And uh, Max and I are joined today uh, by a guest. Uh, that's Phil Reeves. Phil's been a, a really super long uh, time. He's been working in the 3D printing industry for about 25 years. And uh, in that time, a lot of his time has been doing uh, consulting and, and uh, 3D printing consulting focused on applications, developing new materials, developing new processes, uh, and bringing products to market and uh, doing technical due diligence and stuff like that. And Phil's, Phil's one of the, yeah, the most experienced 3D printing consultants in the whole world, I guess, and a uh, really great guy to boot. So that's good. So uh, welcome. Uh, welcome to the show, uh, Phil. Hey, no problem at all, guys. Thank you. Uh, thanks for the introduction, Joris. And uh, nice to meet you, Max. Yeah, nice to meet you too. Phil, what have you been doing in 3D printing so far? You've been doing this for a long time. And what kind of stuff have you been doing? Yeah, I, I started off, I guess, yeah, 25, 26 years ago. I actually built an FDM machine um, that was a retrofit head that went onto a CNC machine uh, when I was a student back in the early 1990s. It seemed like a good idea at the time. Everyone else thought it was crazy. Um, how times have changed, huh? Um, right. But then I, I kind of got into, into proper additive manufacturing. I did my PhD in stereolithography uh, in the 90s, mid-90s, and then ended up spinning a company out of the university. We had a bureau for a while uh, and then got into consulting in about 2003 and haven't really looked back. So most of my time spent helping companies understand the technical and economic benefits of this technology and, and really how you embed it in the business. And that's then opened up all sorts of doors to working with different technology vendors, materials companies, software companies, investors, governments. So, yep, everything I do is, is pretty much focused around the wonderful world of additive. How, how have you seen the industry kind of jump in the last couple of months with the whole COVID uh, crisis? Yeah, I wondered when we jumped straight to the COVID crisis. <laughs> so. um, I've, I've seen it do exactly what I suppose I expected it to do, which was an enormous groundswell of well-meaning enthusiasm and good intention, which is great to see. And then probably within two to three weeks, start to see the skeptics coming out of the woodwork. Uh, and within four to five weeks, start to see the realization that just because you have access to 3D printers doesn't mean that you throw good engineering practice to one side. Um, <laughs> and that actually there are things called CE marks and that there are things called certification and legislation and quality and that they're there for a really, really good reason. And that's to actually protect people's health. So I think it's been interesting. I think there's been some really great applications of, of additive. Um, it's probably the first time we've ever tested the theory that additive could be used to uh, reduce and shorten the supply chain. Because actually until now, most applications have been for, for geometric complexity, product optimization, product personalization, customization. It hasn't actually been about supply chain shift and this is the first time we've tried to use it to really change change the way supply chains work and in some cases it's been really successful but it's it's made us realize that even though we have access to printers and capacity we still have to consider design materials legislation so yeah it's it's been it's been fascinating um 
in fact, I've just been on a call with one of the vendors who, who was saying that they think that their machines produced somewhere in the region of 300, 400,000 parts during COVID, which on one hand sounds great. On the other hand, it sort of pales into insignificance when you think about how many hundreds of millions of face masks and PPE are actually required. Who, who do you think is a success story in this? Like, what's an example of, you'd say, where it has worked? Yeah, I think it's worked best where it's been applied to the things it's good at. And that is small, complex geometry that's difficult to produce by, by other methods. So I think some of, the, some of the examples of personal protective equipment around visors and face shields, they've all been admirable, but they've largely ignored the benefit of additive manufacturing. You know, a lot of those things could have been laser cut from sheet. They could have been stamped out with really simple tools that could have been made within a matter of hours, if not days. I think where it's really excelled has been things uh, around um, couplings for airflow, uh, missing tubing couplings around respirators and, and applications where the complexity of the thing that you need is actually quite high and you couldn't make it by um, by laser cutting, you couldn't necessarily make it easily by local CNC machining. So I think that's where it's, it's worked really well. I think it's also worked exceptionally well as a tool in prototyping. You know, let, let's not forget most additive machines in the world are still used to support the product development process. They're not used for, for product manufacture. And, you know, talking to people, we've seen excessive use of RP in the the accelerated product development cycle of, of things like respirators, where they've needed functional, functional testable product within days. So, so therefore, you know, additive has been the, the perfect way to get that, get that prototype in the hands of the people that need to do the functional testing. In what cases do you believe that right now at 3D printing, we're ready for pride and time, like ready in the supply chain to make like, you know, besides hearing aids and orthopedic implants, the success cases, you know, for what products do you think we're ready to do actual manufacturing? I, I think I still maintain that there's a lot, of, a lot of sectors that are not yet exploring the tech that, that, that could be. Technically, they could be using it. I, I still think there's a huge amount of scope in aerospace, um, particularly mm -hmm. around aerospace interiors, cabin interiors, where there's still a lot of polymer opportunity. And, and largely, that's not been explored because the economics up until now just haven't made sense. You know, we've had very few vendors in the world who, who are able to produce parts in, in the materials that are either glass-filled, flame-proof nylons or some of the materials like Ultem and Peak. But that's changing. That's mm -hmm. shifting. You know, we've got a whole, whole raft of new uh, FDM technology vendors out there and, and an emerging number of polymer powder systems that, that can use these types of materials. So I think, you know, the aerospace interiors guys are going to start looking again whether it makes makes sense um obviously aerospace power you know we're going to continue to see growth there in terms of, of metals super nickel alloys titaniums because i think people are only just getting to grips with the production economics and how you really make a a productive supply chain and a productive factory um and then my other my other kind of sweeping bet is is around oil and gas petrochemical farmer i think those guys are really waking up to the efficiency gains they can get if they start using additive in their process equipment. You know, if I can make a heat exchanger that's 5% more efficient, or I can make a filter that's 5% more efficient, I can have massive financial benefit to my downstream production. So, so right. to me, those are, that's the way to still think about the tech. It's not on a, you know, tomorrow we can start thinking about this product the day after we can start thinking mm -hmm. about that product. 
I think we've, we've still got to think of it at a high level. You know, why does anybody want to adopt this technology? You either yeah. use it to, to grow, grow your top line through new product innovation, selling things you could never sell before or selling products that are better than your competitors, or you use this tech to grow your bottom line to, to increase your profitability. And, and you do that by being more resource efficient, by being slicker in the supply chain or, or by using the technology on the shop floor to, to, to drive out the wastes in lean manufacturing. You know, those are the only two reasons that industry really wants to use additive. It's either to make more money on the top or to make more profit on the bottom. Um, and, and again, we, we just need to think about how does the technology allow us to do that? Yeah. I'm hugely bullish because anything in flow, I love anything in flow. The whole idea of just optimizing material flow, either where through meshes or filters or just flow nozzles and things like that, valves. Uh, and also, like you mentioned, heat sinks. I love like things like manifolds and stuff like mm -hmm. that. And, and do you think, you know, what needs to happen? Because, I, you know, the iDRO, I keep talking about iDRO is, is the one case of a company really using this and getting to the fore. We all know there's isolated islands of applications. But if we're going to adopt the, the, this technology, how do we get these 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 specialist components are made by specialist firms, and they're really and they're really kind of locked behind all sorts of closed doors? How do we get these people to wake up to additive and be able to use it? Yeah, I think I think largely what we have to do is we have to understand where the value is in the value chain, and then how we mm -hmm. how we monetize or how we commoditize the value of using additive. So, you know, take, take an example of a, of a heat exchanger. You know, if, if a heat exchanger made by additive um, can improve process flow by 5%, what does that mean economically to production? Because invariably, industrial additive parts are more expensive than parts made by traditional manufacturing. You know, if you're using metal, metal powder bed additive to replace CNC machining, or you're using it to replace investment casting, certainly if there's any sort of volume involved in terms of volume of parts the economics rarely stack up for using additive so so you have to think beyond just like for like component economics you have to start thinking hey if i use this additive part how do i make money elsewhere within the value chain and, and i think that's the bit where the education needs to take place is is looking at this and, and saying well how can i justify using additive a, a lot of the problem is that the benefit isn't necessarily um, gained by the person making the part. It's gained by their customer. Mm -hmm. So, so it's a tough sell to say to your customer, Hey guys, I've got these additive parts. They're brilliant. They're going to save you 5% in production, but they cost 10 times as much. Well, procurement are just going to say, Hey, give me the original part. I don't care about the economic savings in my production. I've been told to drive down my procurement cost. So I think that's, that's one of the issues we have. And, and, and we, we somehow got to educate procurement people that, that maybe you know buying more expensive components in the in the short term gives you huge long-term benefits as, as a customer that's kind of what happened in like okay in space like so nasa was a very early proponent of mm -hmm. 3d printing and stuff the satellite guys and the nro and all these other uh, agencies were using additive, and actually the americans have developed a lot of additive technology specifically for aerospace and specifically for space and and things like icbms right um but it was, to me, the really big moment for additive in space was when NASA started producing all these papers, which were saying, hey, look, we're saving, it's, it's, it's equal to the performance of cast parts. It saved us 50% in the procurement cost. And then we, then for the first time, we had publicly available data saying, 
you know, space, you know, for propulsion systems and metal, for example, that additive would, would, uh, was a viable option and it was a faster and cheaper option. Mm -hmm. uh, do you think that so stuff like that has to happen that people really understand the economics? Because like, okay, I'm trying to imagine this conversation with these procurement guys and I've worked with like, you know, procurement people for aerospace companies, for example, it's a nightmare. Right. I'm trying to imagine this conversation and don't we need hard data for these guys or how would that work? Yeah, we do. And, and hard data is something that you can get your, you can lay your hands on if you know either how to find it or how to create it. And I think one of the problems is that the vendors themselves are, of they're, they're quite lax in the way they produce data and they're very restrictive in the data that they share. So, you know, if I want to do an economic analysis of a build, um, then the things that I need to know are how much raw material am I going to use? How much waste is it going to create? What's the potential probability of failure of each build? What's the build time? What's the prep time? Um, what's then the post-processing in terms of heat treatment, support, removal, removal from the bed? All those things go into an economic model and then I can scale that and look at production. And, and actually most of that information isn't freely available from vendors. And certainly doing good build time analysis. It's interesting, most machines these days, when you've bought the machine, they have a reasonably accurate build time estimator on the machine. But actually, mm -hmm. I want access to the build time estimator before I've bought the machine. Yeah. I need that in order to do my economic calculations. So, you know, hey guys, why don't you make those things available to the user community so we can actually do back-to-back -back comparisons of tech? Because that's, that's what I've, we need. I've got... I've gotten so much mileage as a consultant of telling customers how to do this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Say, like, estimate the cost of the thing. Right? Jerry, right? don't, don't, I've also had projects whereby... Yeah. Yeah. Don't, don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I, I love all the different websites and web configurators yeah. and tools. There was another one launched today um, which purports to help you select the most appropriate technology for your needs. And, and I look at them and think, yeah, it's great from a consultant's point of view. Huh. It's kind of worrying, but, but that's the way the world yeah, is going. You know, we, we, we have to add value yeah, where we can find it. Yeah, I don't know how many times. I've, okay, so I, I did this analysis a whole bunch of times. Every time you start from scratch, right? And then, and then also that you just, you just like, it would just be a complete win to say, you know what? We should compare the technologies. And you should have a tool to do that, you know? Uh, it was, it was, but I love it. I love it the times it went wrong as well. Like I've had customers come to me that they didn't realize they had, they made the whole case, but they didn't realize in things like minimum wall thickness or, mm -hmm. or part size or that kind of stuff. Which is we, we, we lack any kind of economic reality in, in, in trying to, for, for new users of our systems. Yeah. And, and, and the reality is in, in the industrial context, the application of additive is an expensive process and it is a risky process. So, you know, I always maintain you have to start with a you know, very, very open eyes and you have to start by, by putting the technology to one side and focusing on what do I want this technology to do? How do I want, how much do I need it to grow revenue? How much do I need it to save on the shop floor? And you, because you have to have some metrics against which you can then compare the benefits of using additive. Or in some cases, the, you know, the, the, the negatives of, of, of additive. And, and then you have to also think about all the other implications of using this tech. How does it shift your people and your skills? And, and you know, how, does it, how does it change the infrastructure of an organization? Because you know, some of these technologies, they're, they're better suited to the laboratory than they are to the shop floor. 
Um, mm-hmm. right. And all of a sudden, you're, t- you're telling shop floor organizations that they need to start putting in, you know, partial clean rooms and controlled temperature environments and controlled humidity. And, you know, whereas before they were just storing billets of material on racks um, and bars, bars of material in, in, in racks, you, you know, you're telling them to start carefully handling highly reactive powders that have to be maintained at, at certain, certain levels of, of humidity. There's a big shift in competence mm-hmm. there. So, so all those things take time and money for companies to get their heads around. How, how many industrial printers would you estimate are in use right now? Oh, that's a great question, isn't it? Because all I could ever do is, is quote you numbers that I've read by somebody who also estimated, who probably right. recorded <laughs> someone else who estimated. So Faded it, yeah. you, need, you need to just go straight to Terry, uh, Terry Wallers or go to the context research and, and read the numbers. I think the other thing is, what is an industrial printer? Um, right. No, that's seg- fair. You know, do you segment the market based on cost? Do you segment the market based on material? Do you segment the market based on capability, bed size, throughput? Um, you know, my, my, my gut feeling is that there are, there are pockets of activity around the world where there are multiple, and by multiple, I mean tens to fifties of machines in single facilities producing parts. Um, but, you know, they're not like rats. You don't trip over one every six feet. Mm-hmm. Um, there are 3D printers every six feet, but they're being used right. for, for, you know, little bits of printing of, of as my friend Gideon Levy says, she-she, you know, it's, <laughs> it's downloaded bobbleheads and Yoda. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, we, we're talking, you know, there are millions of printers out there for sure. There are hundreds of thousands of what I would call industrial grade printers out there. And there are I'm going to say tens of thousands of printers out there being used day in, day out to make product that adds value to the company that owns the machine. Because that's the other way to look at it. If you make a product with an additive machine, it adds value. If you do prototyping with it, it just reduces cost. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think those adding value machines are probably in the tens of thousands. Would you think that there's more than 2 million just 3D printers in general in the, in the world? at this point i think if we count every permutation of a yeah every printer, permutation yeah yeah for sure you know i know i can tell you for a fact the guy in the office right next to where i'm sitting now he has an it company uh he does secure hosting he's got two 3d printers in there because he's a nerd i know another it company who they have a little zortrack or something um and you know i said to the guy that runs the company four or five person company why have you got a 3d printer you know you're an it company and he said we use it for making clips for broken servers because it's cheaper for us to do that than to buy them from ibm and and the cad Mm -hmm. skills you need to do little clips and brackets for putting you know rack mounted uh hard drives simple cad so i think there are lots and lots of, of applications out there and people using the technology like that but you know, they're using it once a week at most. It's not something you can base a business plan on. Yeah. But the other applications that you see, we always ask people about emerging applications, but to me, it's really interesting to see applications that simply aren't happening, but should happen. You alluded to that earlier. I mean, but there being lots more potential in, in aerospace interiors and things. But like, for example, like hearing aids, a big user, they make millions of parts a year, but the, the, there's no, I can't, well, there was one startup, I think we've mentioned this before, there was one startup that uses for uh, for headphones, right? Yeah, normal. But 
Yeah, a normal did it for headphones, right? Mm -hmm. And then I think Ultimate Ears uses it for certain oh, yeah. uh, products. Yeah. Uh, but it, it hasn't become, it's not that somebody has successfully implemented a service to make millions of customized uh, headphones, even though technology-wise, that's super possible because it's exactly mm -hmm. the same supply chain as for, for these, these in-the-ear hearing aids. I mean, do you, do you, are, so two questions, why isn't that happening, right? Or if you find it more interesting is the second question is like are there other applications out there that you think oh my god this should totally happen but it isn't i mean as you say there's a couple of questions there why isn't it happening i mean customization is an interesting topic you, you could have a whole podcast talking about whether there's truly a benefit to customization you know consumers on one hand consumers actually buy into brands they don't want personalization they want brand identity they're part of a tribe that's what they look for yeah um, I yep. can understand from a, a, an ergonomic point of view that yes, personalization makes sense, but there's lots of studies that show that actually personalization and ergonomics are really hard things to quantify and, and to put a hear, to, to put a, um, either a hearing aid in or to put a, certainly put some, some headphones on and say, Hey, this personalized one's better than the standard one. That's actually a tough thing to, to, to quantify. So I think, I think the personalization mm -hmm. aspect unless it's something that, that you can truly justify an ergonomic benefit, then it's a tough business case. I, I think the other thing that stops the shift, if you like, across to additive with companies is that a lot of companies have already invested in a supply chain. They've already invested in a way of doing things. And the way that they do things today is not broken. There's not a problem with it. So, you know, you only apply additive when it's a solution to a problem or it presents you with a business opportunity. And I think that's, that's the bit that we have to help companies understand more is, well, how can you reshape your business to, to use the opportunity that this provides? Or how can we help you identify the problems in your business? Um, and, and I think that's, that's the disconnect here because everyone just looks at it and goes, oh, you can print anything. You can make crazy shapes. Well, you could personalize this. You can personalize that. And, and then you just have to step back and go, why? There's no consumer demand. There's no economic benefit and there's no business driver. So, you know, I think, I think the reality is we have to be realists, which comes back kind of to the COVID thing. You know, we have to be realists and engineers first. And an additive is a, is a great tool that lets us think differently about things, but it's just a tool. No, I completely agree. I mean, I think what's interesting is that customers always come to the wrong with the wrong parts. Customers seem to always come with the wrong ideas. Consumers always think about this as in, in, in terms of chocolate or sex toys. So just the endless possibilities does kind of obscure the business case, you know? Well, I mean, there's I'm not, I'm not sure there was a question in there. Yeah, right. It was just, just Joris wanted to make a reference to chocolate and sex toys. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was venting. I was venting. <laughs> you keep that no, to no, yourself. I mean, uh, would, you, would you agree, though, that, that, that well, come on, you've, you've, I don't know, I've received hundreds of emails more than anything else about, like, sex toys or chocolate, right? And they're both, like, really bad ideas, generally, compared to all the other stuff. I mean, does, does the fact that we're, like, so boundless hard. and we can make anything... Yeah, can we? Is the fact that we're boundless and we can make anything does that obscure the obvious? Does that like retard us in effect? Because you could do so much with the technology. Yeah, I think we again we have to be realist around when we say we can make anything. What we're actually saying is I can make any geometry. Oh, hang on, let me just catch that again. I can make any geometry within certain size constraints oh hang on let me just catch that <laughs> yeah. again i can make any geometry within any certain tolerance constraint yeah. oh and then 
hang on, what, what about beyond geometry? What about function? What yeah. about material? So, so yeah, we, we can't make everything. And, and uh, you know, I do remember, I do remember walking, you know, walking through the streets of Manhattan into the MakerBot store when it first opened and Brie had people wearing t-shirts that said, Hey, we make anything. And, and it was kind of a little <laughs> bit cringy, you know, because it just sends yeah. out the message. We can't make anything. What we can make are a subset of manufactured products, but my God, we can make them far better geometrically. And in some, some cases we can make them far better economically the more established manufacturing processes. Do ourselves a disservice by focusing on the make anything thing and, the, and then we can make all the parts and we make all the things and all engineers, kind of the universal applicability of the, of the industry means that every time somebody is not able to make something in an industrial setting, they think we, we, we suck or we some kind of failed. Um, uh, and then we've kind of overclaimed our technology and then certain people have, and I think we all got swept up in the, in the excitement, although Phil is very well known for, for giving tough love to 3D printing. Um, uh, I think uh, even in the hype days, um, but just generally, I think, you know, how do we go forward in trying to get like the 90% of companies to adopt this technology that haven't? What is the realistic path forward? How do we do realistic? You kind of described how you think that should, should happen, but what else should we, do we need to do? There's a number of things that we need to do. And I think these things are happening. I think the, the, the more, third-party shared data and information that we can see about process capability, the better. So, you know, the guys at Senvol are doing some great work building out their databases. Great, you know, great. Yeah. originally they were just databases of material properties that came from the vendors. They're now augmenting those databases with third-party material property data. So, you know, that's kind of irrefutable yeah. data. That's really, really important. I think we're starting to see credible software companies who are now starting to build simulation tools that let us simulate some of these processes and these materials. That's really important mm -hmm. being able to simulate what we do before we try to do it. Um, we're starting mm -hmm. to see much better connectivity, digital connectivity across the value chain. So interoperability between different CAD packages, different simulation, different workflow, right the way through to the machines themselves and, 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 and build path data generation. I think having that mm -hmm. interoperability of hardware and software, that's critical to driving things forward. Uh, and then the other thing, you know, as, as, as dull and boring as it can be is standards. Um, mm -hmm. The development of interoperable industry standards that let supply chains actually say, hey guys, I want this additive part and I want it produced to that standard. You know, without those standards, there is no interoperability in the supply chain. So the problem is those things take time. They're done through consensus and they're largely done for free. They're done through goodwill of the people that sit mm -hmm. on those standards committees. And, well, you know, those people have to find their time and they have to convince their, you know, convince the powers that be in their companies to let them go to those standards groups. So, you know, I think those things together, interoperability of data, development of standards, availability of good quality third party materials, data, all that together should hopefully accelerate the adoption of the technology far more than we, we have in the past. And where are you focusing your efforts? I mean, I know, I know like in the past you've done stuff where you characterize materials for a while. I think you're the only person I could send people to that wanted to create their own SLS material. Uh, you know, you, you did testing and comparisons and benchmarking and where, where are you focusing your attention on now? Yeah, I've, I've got some, some interesting things. Obviously, a lot of the things, if I told you, I'd have to shoot you. Uh, and I don't want to no. do that because I like you. Um, 
I'm, yeah, I'm doing some I'm doing some fun work at the moment with the guys at Boston Microfabrication BMF. Um, uh-huh. So they have a, um, a stereolithography or a, a VAT polymerization process um, called projection microstereolithography, which is um, two microns resolution in the X and Y and five micron layer. Uh, wow. So true wow. micro manufacturing. So I'm doing some work helping them. Mm-hmm. understand the the market opportunity space in micro injection molding micro manufacturing and we're doing some yeah. some work characterizing different photocurable resins and mapping them actually against uh, engineering polymers oh, that's sorry interesting, i mean to comp- no, no, it, yeah that is yeah, sorry, yeah so well, i've 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 been looking at you know why why do people choose peak pec pei nylon acetyl acrylic pbax yeah. tp what's the principal yeah. mechanical reason why you choose it and then saying, okay, if you take uh-huh. those principal mechanical reasons and the secondary and tertiary reasons, can you actually map them against mm-hmm. available open source additive manufacturing photopolymers? And, and if okay, so, nice. how well do they yeah. fit? Is it, is it within 20%, mm-hmm. 10%, 5%? And actually saying, mm-hmm. let's build a selection matrix that says, when a customer comes forward and says, hey, I have to have nylon, you can step back and say, why? What's your principal reason for nylon? And then you can use the yeah. data sets to actually select a photocurable that fits. So that's, that's some interesting, fun, fun activity. Um, I'm doing I like some that work. as a product as well, huh? I like yeah. that as a product. That would be very valuable. I would use that. I'm sure lots of people would, but BMF paid for it, so it's theirs. If they put it on the website, if they put it on yeah. the website, I could sign up well, or something. I would, I would totally use that, dude. Yeah. Hey, hey, you take, take that up with him. Yeah, so I'm, I'm doing yeah. some, some, fun, some fun stuff with, with a company called V-Access Orca, who you've probably never heard of. Um, they're owned yeah. by Orange, France Telecom. Oh, yeah. So they manage all the infrastructure that sits behind pay TV. So if you've ever yeah. tried to hack Netflix or hack Amazon Prime, uh, you can't because, yeah. kind of, you know, that's, that's their, their knowledge bases around security. So we've been looking at how we can take that, technology and that 20 years of skill they have in that sector and then bring it across into the additive supply chain so we've been it sounds a lot like drm phil yeah (laughs) exactly it it, it, it is drm it's a really important part of drm that that kind of the consumer oh my god this is the first this is the first drm initiative that actually says it's drm i love that everyone else is it's not dearer (laughs) of course you know you have to consider what is the digital right that you're trying to protect and and everyone's harped on about data for years oh it's the geometry it's the cad no it's not it's the bill file because there's a huge amount of ip in there and and actually Mm -hmm. what companies who are accepting those files want is they want to be in a position Mm -hmm. of true traceability and credibility so that if something goes wrong they can say it wasn't my fault and that's actually where drm comes into play you know, it's not about protecting the content. It's also about ensuring the traceability, the interoperability, the, you know, the end-to-end flow of that data and the monetization. So but, it, but why don't it, you then say it's PostScript? It's like PostScript for additive. Yeah, you can say that if you like, but I think it goes beyond, it goes beyond that. You know, at the end of the day, in industrial supply chains, yes, we have contracts, we have legal requirements. So in that mm-hmm. respect digital rights management is more about ensuring that if I give you rights to something, I'm giving you rights to exactly what I want from you. And therefore, if you use it mm-hmm. and you make against it, when you give me something mm-hmm. back, I can't say it's wrong. So it mm-hmm. does work. It does work both ways. So that's, that's been an interesting, uh, interesting uh, project. And then the, the other thing that I'm just finishing off, I've been doing a lot of work again on standards um, mm-hmm. with, with BSI, the British standards Institute, where we've, we've written, 
uh, something called PASS uh, 6001, which is the standard for how do you build and assess a business case for investing in additive. So okay. until now, we've, we've kind of realized that there's a real disconnect in companies where the, the, the technical people understand the additive, the finance directors and the procurement guys understand money and yeah. they don't talk in the same language. So how do you actually mm-hmm. build, how do you build a P&L for an additive machine? How do you build mm-hmm. um, a, an ROI tool if you're going to invest in additive to use it for making tooling on your shop floor? Mm-hmm. So, so what we've done mm-hmm. is, is put together with, with some accountants and some different focus groups around the place, um, a, a standard, a, a standard methodology that a company can adopt and then they can use it between them. The engineers can work up their business case using the template. The finance guys can use the standard to make the assessment of that template. And, and, it, and it says, so you know, what, what, what are the hidden costs that people are probably going to miss? Mm-hmm. Um, whether mm-hmm. that is around skills and people development, whether it's even around, uh, around mm-hmm. backlash from the unions, you know, and that's an interesting mm-hmm. one. You know, all of a sudden oh, is, you're, telling, you're telling production, uh, sorry, you're telling retail workers that they're going to start running 3D printers to make consumer products. Hey, my union is not a production union. My union's a retail union. So there's, there's all sorts of things. And then there's, there's some really interesting uh, issues around, uh, certainly more applicable here in the UK, but around the financial uh, implications from a, from a government and legislative point of view, investing in capital assets. You know, how much can you actually write off mm-hmm. against tax? What allowances are mm-hmm. for CapEx? What R&D allowances are there? At what point in the transition from, uh, assessing additive manufacturing to actually moving into production, there's a point at which everything that you're doing is still research and development. So actually you can get tax credits against it. So there's, there's lots of things that companies need to know about when they're building that business case for, for signing off on, mm-hmm. you know, potentially two, mm-hmm. three, five, $10 million worth of equipment. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, that's, that's, that, that's the other thing that we've, we've yeah. been doing recently. So, so standards, data, and very, very small things. But, but so you, you're not in, because the material space is huge now compared to a couple of years ago. A couple of years ago, it was like Evolnik or maybe some Evolnik. Uh, you know? uh, and, and, and now we've got a lot of vendors. There's a lot. There should, would seem to be a lot of work there. Anything in materials? Yeah, I, I think the materials. That or? I, I, I am. And, and I've, I've been looking, uh, and I'm not going to go into a lot of depth, but I have been looking at some patterns recently. Um, around uh, what's called reactive jetting. So I think this is the next mm-hmm. big step forward. You know, up until now, pretty much every additive machine, certainly every polymeric machine, if it's, if it's photocurable, you're taking some liquid monomer with a catalyst, you're hitting it with some mm-hmm. wavelength, 405, 395, and, and curing it into a thermoset. Or mm-hmm. you've got some thermoplastic yeah. process where you take a raw material you heat it up beyond its melt point or you put it into some, mm-hmm. some plastic phase and you extrude it or you melt it and it crystallizes. And it's all the same, whether it's, whether it's laser sintering, multi-jet fusion. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we've had that for 20 years now, th- those two methods. And, mm-hmm. and, and there is another way which is starting to emerge, which is the idea that the, the additive machine actually becomes the, the chemistry lab. Um, and the mm-hmm. chemical constituent parts of the material are the raw materials that you put into the machine. Um, and that mm-hmm. through the nature of actually jetting those materials, you cause mm-hmm. uh, a, a chemical reaction and you cause the catalyzation to take place on the fly in the jetting head. So mm-hmm. you're making the polymer as you go. 
So that has some interesting implications on mechanical properties. It's got some really interesting implications environmentally because you're actually only producing exactly the right material you need from the base constituent chemicals. So there's yeah. some economic and, and, and environmental benefits. So that's, that's something I've been looking at, but I'm not going to go into a lot of depth. Uh, because the, the interestingly, I've written about this. I've written about this one path to this, which is different than the one you're discussing, which I think maybe make it easier for you to, to, to talk about this. And that's the idea of using, like, let's, for example, a microfluidic head, right? Mm -hmm. That then could mix these materials in a very discrete quantity and then jet them, right? Or drop them or drop on demand or, or in some yep. kind of way uh, deposit these things. So that's one way of doing this that I think is really exciting. I mean, the, the, my personal blog, which I never ever write anything on, and also my uh, personal like, consultancy thing was VoxelFab. Mm -hmm. It's called VoxelFab. And that's that whole idea that a particular voxel making a particular material with a particular characteristics. So I think I'm really, really very excited by this. It's really interesting that you're, uh, that you're into that as well, that you, you think that this is like very exciting, especially, of course, your photopolymer kind of background. I think that would be very, uh, very exciting to you to look at as well. Yeah, I think there's, there's a whole class of, of materials, you know, reactive materials, whether they're reactive polyurethanes, whether they're silicons, mm -hmm. where the, our mm -hmm. traditional way of making those materials is to use a chemical reaction at the point of manufacture. So it mm -hmm. sort of makes sense to start transitioning that. And, mm -hmm. and it would be interesting, mm -hmm. and maybe we'll end up in a position where the end material properties of what we get from the 3D printer are mm -hmm. exactly the same as the traditional manufacturing process, because fundamentally we're yeah. making it in the same way which is, the, is that chemical yeah. reaction. So, mm -hmm. you know, I think going forward, that's how companies are going to differentiate themselves in the additive space, is through the intelligence mm -hmm. of their materials. But I think it's interesting that we don't really have a, a very good vocabulary to describe, you know, we can, every part could be a material, potentially, and every single location, every square mm -hmm. millimeter of that part could have a different property or could have a different gradient, or, and the part itself could be gradient as well. I mean, we don't really have a vocabulary to really completely describe that or really even kind of explain that to people. Yeah, but, but I think we've, we've, no, I think you're right, but we've, we've created this because we're really the first industry that's been able to, to think of material changes at that sort of voxel level. Um, mm -hmm. So it's, it's kind of up to us to, to invent the lexicon, if you like. And, that, and to some degree, that is, that's happening with things like 3MF. I think the 3MF standard actually works out ways of describing that change in material properties. I have no idea, right? I've read that like cursorily, not really a lot. I really, every time I have to explain to people what could be possible and I just sound really stupid and, and I just want to have some kind of way to describe what it would mean to make every single thing like have be its own material, in fact, you know? Yeah, I think, I think the way to think of it is that, that, you know, there are certain additive machines, particularly the jetting type technologies where if you've got a 720 DPI print head, then you've got 720 little chemical factories and mm -hmm. all one, each one's independent. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we just have to work out the right inputs digitally and chemically, uh, and hopefully they'll spit the right outputs out. Sounds mm -hmm. easy, doesn't it? But it's not. Yeah, <laughs> so easy. You just throw it together. It's just a weekend project, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but but and the thing but that is that, that I, I can't even really understand like a lot of it's like soft robotics where there's no applications but it's really exciting it's one of these things where you could maybe explain it a little to people but then you're like so what's the advantage and the only thing i've been able to come up with is like this idea of this variable density insole where you could show it to people 
where it's like every point in the insole, we can make a different hardness, so it'll be much more comfortable for you or for me or for my left foot. I mean, that's the application I can come up with that really lets people understand this. But I'm really struggling always to kind of figure out why this is interesting, you know? Yeah, I think I think there's uh, engineering. Like a, yeah, I was going to say there's, there's, there's engineering, a bunch of engineering applications. Stuff that hits me. Yeah, around around um, you know tune damping systems, um, mm -hmm. whether those are you know motion based damping. There's all sorts of optics you know, holding optic systems. And yeah, I can think of, you know, you talked about satellites earlier. I can think of a lot of damping mm -hmm. applications in satellite launch where, uh -huh. you know, you imagine if you could, if you could take some of that energy out of the launch process, you know, how, how overly yeah. engineered do things have to be because of the forces that are involved in launch? You know, could we, could we use yeah. damping or, or at least energy absorbency through this voxel approach mm -hmm. to, to allow us to design things mm -hmm. that are even lighter weight? Oh, that'd be really nice. Yeah. And other other like dream customers or kind of ideas where you're like, oh my god, I would love for somebody to to to, to let me work on this challenge or let me work on that kind of thing. I mean, I, I like that you you have this reactive jetting as a, as a as a thing. Are there other things you are excited about? Um, Joris, I've known you long enough not to answer the question. What what do I get excited <laughs> about? You know what what excites me is when three D printing things pop up out of nowhere, totally unexpected, and nobody jumped around doing a song and a dance. You know, mm -hmm. the, 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 day, the day I'll be happy is the day that I, I open a bag of shopping from the supermarket and pull something out and there happens to be a 3D printed part there mm. um, that's, that's, that's not singing, <laughs> dancing, going, hey, I'm 3D printed, I'm special. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, not, it's not special. Um, so dream customers. Um, I'm not sure. I did, I, I did a project last year with, with the guys at Madame Two Swords who make the waxworks okay, okay. figures and, and, and yep. digitizing all that and looking at their workflow. And, and I probably shouldn't have said that, but my God, that was a really fun project. That was so fun looking yeah, at how, how technology yeah. can be applied to a 200 year old process. Um, uh -huh. Yeah, we've- Ah, you, know, you on the wax. You inkjet on the wax below a level of wax. So you can make like a higher definition thing on, underneath yeah. it, some, something like that. <laughs> no, I'm, no. I'm, I'm sure you, you let your let your imagination go in any way you so desire. Um, yeah, I don't I don't think I've got a, I don't think I've got a dream a dream client anymore. You know, I've 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 been very fortunate to work with all sorts of great companies in you know everything from medical devices and implants to oil and gas companies to, as I say, waxworks dummies through to theme parks mm -hmm. to computer gaming companies that want to realize their avatar characters. Um, it's a yeah former vice presidents of America that want to look at the uh, environmental benefits of using this in the supply chain. Mm. Um, so yeah, we you know it's it's been a it's been a good a good kind of twenty five year roller coaster. Hopefully it's not over yet. I, I make it sound like it's a yeah my my obituary. Mm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and at this in this time and age, we shouldn't be talking about those. But no, I, no, I don't know. I think, you know, I, I'm, I'm hoping, I'm really hopeful now that we've kind of got over the second hype wave of additive um, and mm -hmm. that, that companies now are, you know, they, they've, they've put to bed the, the original nonsense that came about about we can print everything and they've, they've seen the, the realities of what can be achieved and what can't be achieved. And, and now they're starting to answer the, ask those really sensible engineering questions, which might be a bit mm -hmm. dull, but they're, you know, they're yeah. the things that will see this industry grow and, and they are about economic feasibility and technical viability. That's what's important to people. Mm -hmm. uh, awesome. Do you think the hype awesome. phase delayed it? Or do you think that we always have to go through a hype phase with new technology? 
I don't think it delayed it at all. I, I look back at the hype or the first hype, you know, the first hype phase was really the output of RepRap. Um, right. Up, up until then, this technology was known by industry. The people that needed it had it. Um, they were starting to make that transition across to, to component part manufacture. Prototyping was a done deal. Jigs fixes and tooling was pretty well understood. Casting was pretty well understood. And then RepRap came out and then we had the, the whole, you know, growth of the, the early um, desktop machines, the, the Ultimakers, the MakerBots, that put it into the public consciousness. And that was a good thing to some degree, because what it also did is it put it into the consciousness of people at the top of manufacturing organizations who don't spend their daily lives in manufacturing. So it got them asking the questions, well, what are we doing about additive manufacturing? You know, I, I remember going into a, one of the luxury goods apparel companies in New York with the CEO saying, well, where's our, where's our additive manufacturing strategy? What are we doing? And these are guys who make everything from, you know, expensive jerseys through to, to handbags through to belts. And, and on the face of it, you think, well, yeah, actually, you can use this technology and it's right to ask the question. But nobody in their engineering department had thought about additive manufacturing. So, so these things are, they were positive. I think what happened was we then fell off the curve because people tried to use the technology. The technology didn't give them what they wanted. We sort of fell into that trough of disillusionment. We've then had this second wave of interest coming off the COVID um, situation where, again, it's positioned 3D printing in the public consciousness. Um, off the back of it, hopefully, we'll start to see companies again saying, well, we looked at it before, it didn't work then, let's look at it again. Because I think that is the thing with additive manufacturing, you have to keep revisiting because the technology is maturing, the materials are maturing, the software's maturing. Just because you look at it one year and it doesn't work for you doesn't mean you shouldn't look at it the next year and the next year and the next year because it constantly evolves. Awesome. Hey, Phil, thank you so much for having you. It was really wonderful to talk to you. And uh, thanks a lot for being on the, the 3D pod today. Hey, no problem at all. It's been a, been a pleasure. It's always a pleasure to catch up with you, Joris. You're usually drunk when I speak to you, so it's nice to speak to you <laughs> while you're sober. <laughs> Well, at least I think I think we think he's sober yeah <laughs> I think exactly I, I think he's sober I mean that's the that's one of the that's one of the benefits of distance-based uh, video conferences but I, I guess he's sober and, and Max you sounded uh, truly okay. very sober so thank you so much. <laughs> thanks for the opportunity it's been an absolute pleasure to chat with you guys today take care all right. All right. Thanks you so much, Phil. Thank you. And uh, this is the three pod. My name is Joris Peels. Today we're on the show with uh, Max Olvo uh, and uh, uh, Phil Reeves. And thank you so much for, for, for joining us and keep the suggestions and ideas coming. And have a great day. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint underscore com.